Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. gets old the great isaac hayes this is closer look from wabe in atlanta i'm rose scott recently on the program we talked about recommendations for atlanta's neighborhood planning units you know those mpus as they were called it was created by maynard jackson and we played a clip from january of 1974 was after jackson was being sworn in it was his speech and he centered on changes he hoped to implement not only in this how the city operated but also Pending reorganization of our city government will be designed to open wide the doors of City Hall to all Atlantans and to make our city government more responsive to people needs and people problems. Foremost among our problems, other than the need for increased interracial cooperation and communication, is crime. Regardless of where we live in Atlanta, whether it be Buckhead or Beaverslide, Peachtree Hills or Perry Homes, Cabbage Town or Collier Heights, Carver Homes or Cascade Heights, regardless of what one does for a living, regardless of the insularity one's money may afford, everybody is crime's victim. And we all must make certain that this dread disease does not cause our great city's demise. I received a lot of feedback regarding that clip with Maynard Jackson. Many of you listeners noting how the issues back then are still some of the same issues today, nearly 50 years later. One of those issues, or rather now, a crisis, housing. And we've heard from so many different guests since this program began way back in 2015, when I was just a teenager. Elected officials, housing affordability advocates, academics, civic and social leaders, faith leaders, people of various ages, ethnicities, income levels. But what has been clear, and I do mean abundantly clear, is this. What's happening in the city, many of the communities that have really stuck through the hard times, and now the redevelopment's coming, people are getting pushed out and they are not there to reap the benefits when they've lived in a food desert or when their schools have been failing. Those people deserve to reap in the benefits of what this city is is becoming. It really is a ticking time bomb for our region and many people have turned away from it because it's not an easy answer. We've lost about 5,000 affordable housing units in Atlanta uh, over the past couple years. Um, so, so rents are getting higher. I'm concerned about what neighborhoods and what the city looks like 20 years from now. 
Do we have a Beltline that is just for the affluent? Do we have a city that's just for the affluent? I think one of my initial evaluations is that we may have lost sight of people a little bit. There's 10,000 seniors that enter the market every day, but there's not 10,000 units being built for them to live in. This is a crisis stage right now. We're not approaching a crisis stage. We're already in it. I would assume I am the target demographic. I am a young millennial. I really just don't know who the people are that are affording these places. If you look up on the horizon, the change that's coming is a tsunami. <laughs> and if we don't match that shifting the way that we see the world, we know we're not going to be able to live here. Voices from 2019, some are very familiar, including my next guest. The question is, how did Atlanta get to this housing crisis level that it's at? Perhaps it can be found in a new book. It's called Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. And its author, Georgia State University Urban Studies professor Dan Emmergluck. He's been on this program many times, first time as an author. Welcome back to the program, Professor. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me, Rose. Before we dig into Red Hot City, I want to open up by taking a look at the entire nation, because as mentioned, Atlanta, look, this has been happening all over the nation, but it was something that David Dworkin from the National Housing Conference wrote. I'm going to read this quote here. Quote, two issues define our new housing crisis. How we address them will determine how our economy bears the next recession and what kind of a country we will be in in the decades ahead. Professor, how much truth is in Dworkin's assessment? There's a lot. Um, uh, it's true that a housing crisis that existed 20 years ago just in or primarily in coastal large cities like San Francisco and New York um, has spread throughout the country. Um, but Atlanta leads the list. We, we have some of the highest increases in rents some of the highest increases in home values, and we have some of the weakest support systems for affordable housing. That being said, when you mentioned, you know, what could t take place in the next 20 years, but listen, we're able to actually identify what's even taken place since I had you on that show on that roundtable. I'm going to go back to July 8th of 2019 of this program. You were part of a roundtable discussion regarding rents and eviction, and I asked you all and the other guests then about projects like the quarry yards, what they could p potentially bring. Now, here's what you said. The way I see quarry yards, it's one of the biggest developments that will hit the city in the next few years. And it's kind of rinse and repeat, meaning we had the Beltline and we've now had over 10 years of really gentrification coming out of the Beltline. And we've had 10 years to change policy. Mm-hmm. And really, policy hasn't changed. So we have these very large developments that are basically engines of gentrification. Even if they put some affordable housing in the development and it's just partly affordable housing, the ripple effect of this development is to drive up market values, drive up speculation, and make the neighborhood unaffordable for the people around it. Even if it's not intended, but it does happen. That's right. Saying. And it's not... The developer's job to do that per se, it's the city's job and the state's job to change the fabric of policy so that there is affordable housing baked in. 
that homeowners around the neighborhood have their property taxes protected and that renters have their rents limited in, in some way. Now, the reason why I chose that clip, Professor, because it was that last part. It's the city and the state's job to change the fabric of policy so that there is affordable housing and all those other things that you mentioned. Even in these last few years with a new administration, that still is at the core of what will possibly solve or help solve Atlanta's housing issues. You stand by that? Oh, yeah. Um, Really, that's the ultimate theme of the book, Mm -hmm. Um, except that it traces a longer arc of policy decisions um, back to the 20th century, but focusing particularly on the Olympics in the 90s and after that. Mm -hmm. Decision after decision to not put in place policies that would protect against speculation, that would bank land for affordable housing, both in the development of housing uh, of housing after the Olympics, in the development of the Beltline, in the surge in vacant properties during the foreclosure crisis when you could buy single family homes for fifteen or twenty thousand dollars that are now worth three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, decision after decision to not create aff- affirmative affordable housing policies. In Red Hot City, as you're mentioning, you are chronicling all this through a historical timeline for Atlanta, and you're focusing on some themes. And I think what's in, in key for folks, and I don't want to give too much away with the book, is that you, you are taking it way back. You're taking it you know, post-Reconstruction. And someone will say, well, can you really pinpoint that as a beginning metric for understanding how we got where we are. Now, I have my answer to that, but I'm not supposed to give it because I'm just a journalist. (laughs) But yes, you're starting there. So tell the listeners why that was important. Yeah. You know, when I started writing this book um, and I had read a lot about the history of Atlanta and and reread it, um, it was clear to me that the political economy of the city and the region really does date back to especially the early to middle 20th century. And the what's called in the political science literature, the black-white urban regime mm-hmm. of Atlanta. This partnership between the white corporate power structure and the developing black power structure and and in housing and urban development, basically the partnership between them and the the lack of contesting that power structure and the lack of looking out for particularly lower income and working class blacks mm-hmm. in the city, black households, that was a that was a recurring thing as urban renewal came in, as The city expanded in 1952 to capture Buckhead, and that was done so that the city wouldn't become majority black for a while. And then once the city did become majority black, the continued efforts to draw in a whiter, more middle class population, especially with the Olympics, and then the demolition of public housing to really, you know, scatter those folks outside the city. and attempts to kind of clear the way for gentrification. What is your response to someone who says, well, you also have to add in that there were federal 
policies or their lack of some federal policies that also contributed to that. We can think of redlining. We can think of obviously the discrimination for black soldiers when they came back after fighting. Everyone had access to all this funding. Well, depending on where you lived, you <laughs> depend on where you were, what you were going to get if you got anything at all. So if someone says, well, Professor, that's clear. You want to you want to focus on that maybe Atlanta policy, but you have to throw in federal policies or their lack of fair policies for blacks as well. And that it in fact impacted all the cities and particularly cities like Atlanta. That's an excellent comment. And I, I think uh, as my response is, I, I, I do lay significant blame at the footsteps of the federal government, both in the 20th century mm-hmm. and in the 21st century. Um, as you say, redlining, uh, urban renewal policies, favored, you know, clearance of black neighborhoods, uh, even the development of our highways, our interstates. That's right. That's right. Although, although arguably it, it was a, it was also a state role mm-hmm. there yeah. and that state highways were being used to separate and isolate black neighborhoods even before federal highways. Were. Mm-hmm. Um, so all levels of government and very importantly, state government, that's uh, one of another key theme of the book, state government has really made it hard for local actors to be more progressive, to do things like fair housing policies or rent control or things like that. I also talk about the huge missed opportunities after the foreclosure crisis Mm -hmm. when the federal government essentially steered Wall Street capital towards buying foreclosed homes. Mm -hmm. And Atlanta was kind of what the private equity guys called a strike zone for their capital. And that was encouraged by the feds instead of encouraging those homes to be, you know, basically made available to black families, to folks who had been hit hard by the crisis or for long-term affordable housing. They were pushed really into the speculative, highly corporate single family rental market. I often use post or pre and post Olympics as a metric for me. I moved here in 96, started coming down 95. I tell the story. I lived off Buford Highway. I had a one bedroom, 900 square feet, $545 in 1996. I was living large, professor. Now, you don't want to know what we're paying now, but I think the, the post, the pre and post Olympics is a pretty good metric when folks look at, folks like yourself, look at how Atlanta's current housing crisis got to where it is because we saw development come in. But also you write about this, too, because I think it's important to get to this. You write, quote, after it became clear that Techwood would be redeveloped somehow, the site's vacancy rate began rising. In June 1990, before the city had won the games, the occupancy rate was over 92 percent. By April 93, after the AHA had stopped admitting new tenants, after previous tenants moved, it had dropped to less than 50 percent. By August of that year, it had fallen to 38 percent. And then you go on to talk about how it fell to 6 percent by the end of 94. How big of a role does the reimagining, or whatever you want to call it, of the Atlanta Housing Authority and with new leadership coming in, how critical has that been and where we are now with Atlanta's housing issues? Yeah, it, very critical. Um, couple things. One is, as you say, federal policy played a role and the kind of planned abandonment of public housing by Congress and the federal government 
the lack of funding contributed to the decay of many public housing sites across the city. But Atlanta, Atlanta had one of the worst performing public housing authorities in the country in the 80s and 90s. And it's true that uh, Techwood, East Lake Meadows, these were not great public housing locations. Sure. I don't want to romanticize this. Sure. But the first proposal from Hope, from the HOPE 6 program that came in 92, um, the, the federal program, to use HOPE 6 monies for Techwood was not to knock it down. It was to, the first proposal was to renovate Techwood. Mm -hmm because this was the first new money, federal money coming in to public housing in a long time. And the mayor at the time, Mayor Campbell, mm -hmm. appointed Renee Glover mm -hmm. and uh, head of the HA, and they had a very clear ideology in, if you, in, in all of the reading on, on this stuff, mm -hmm. that they wanted to basically what I call displace and replace public housing residents with new quote unquote mixed income developments, but where the mixed income meant very few low income, truly low income residents, some what they call, and I don't like this term, workforce housing, mm -hmm. and then uh, really a majority market rate housing. So the number of units shrunk dramatically at these sites and the value of these properties over time be increased a lot. And that, in my mind, was the real motivation behind the public housing, quote unquote, transformation, but really public housing demolition in the city. And again, I think it, it was, if you look at the locations, mm -hmm. Heckwood, Grady Homes, mm -hmm. Eastlake, these are all places that have really been the beneficiaries or at least the land values of public housing as revaluing that land for development to me that was the real purpose of this stuff and we didn't the housing authority didn't even track well the residents who were in those locations mm -hmm. and what happened to them you so it was planned abandonment essentially particularly of techwood as you say it was essentially fully occupied around 1990 mm -hmm. And well before the redevelopment happened, it emptied out because the housing authority disinvested from the site. You mentioned Mayor Campbell. And if you can, if you feel you could, had to do an assessment from with your research, because I played Mayor Jackson. I always play Mayor Jackson clips and people email me, why you play Mayor Jackson clips? I think it's important because I think that's always another metric that people want to use when we talk about how Atlanta has progressed or is progressing or, as someone told me last night, is regressing. But you look at the, all, the, all the administrations, Mayor Jackson, Andy Young, Bill Campbell, Shirley Franklin, Kasim Reed, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and now Mayor Dickens. Are you able to give... <sighs> the reader any insight into any of those administrations that was on track to trying to figure this out in terms of its housing affordability and its issues? Sure. Um, you know, the book is not an attempt to grade administrations sure. or single out administrations in any way, because to be honest, I think in the long run, they mostly, uh, with some exception in the first Jackson administration, did kind of 
follow Mayor Hartsfield's urban regime model of mm -hmm. uh, basically co-opting black leadership with, but where the real power remained with corporate leadership. Um, May Mayor Jackson tried to push back on that in his first term. He clearly tried to prioritize the needs of low-income residents in the city. Mm -hmm. um, he got very quick pushback from the corporate community. He basically got called into the principal's office, if you will, and was treated with severe hostility by kind of this existing power structure that he was interrupting. Well, take that I'm for afraid, our, take that, well, well, hold on, take ahead, that for our listeners ahead. a little bit further when you say called into the principal's office. I mean, can you be a little bit more specific? You're talking about the, in terms of the, the big economic. Called into Coca-Cola's office okay, to be more that's, specific. That's what I wanted to hear, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, you know, the regime was dominated and still is by these large corporate players. The, the, the particular Corporations change sometimes over time, although Delta and Coca-Cola are still in there. Mm -hmm. um, and the particular actors change. But that's, you know, there was a lot of, uh, I mean, those folks opposed Jackson being elected in the first place. Mm -hmm. But they made it very clear that the city would be hard to run if he didn't change some of his policies. And of course he was successful, particularly with contracts at the airport and a variety of other things. But I think historians uh, rec uh, assessment of Jackson is that by the second Jackson term, it didn't look that different mm -hmm. than a lot of other mayors. Um, and, you know, I actually think uh, uh, I have, significant admiration for uh, Mayor Young, but I think Mayor Young's term really kind of reinforced the notion that this was going to be, uh, that the regime was ascendant, that uh, corporate power would be championed, and, you know, explicitly trying to draw in global capital into the city and not taking into account the needs of low-income African-Americans. Is Atlanta at a point, and I've asked this question before, whether you're talking about what did or did not happen under these administra administrations, is Atlanta now at a point where you, it's too late to try to fix it? It's too late to implement new policies, the fabric that you talked about? And is it too late uh, no, it's not too late, but with every decision, big decision, every big project, every Beltline, every Westside Park, every major development decision, it is becoming harder and harder. Meaning if we had, you know, in 2005 or earlier, had really planned to assemble land around the Beltline, like folks are doing with the 11th Street Bridge project mm -hmm. in Anacostia in Washington, D.C. If we had really done that and prioritized land assemblage before trail building, because that's important, because once the trails come in, the values go up. Um, if that had been prioritized, if federal money during the foreclosure crisis had been targeted around the Beltline, to maintain land for affordable housing instead of just flipping properties to homeowners 
and to some degree speculators, if that ethic, if, if the Beltline hadn't been seen as a land speculation vehicle rather than an, you know, a, an opportunity to help existing residents, I think it would, well, I know it would be much easier and we could have acquired much more land and done much more affordable housing. Do I think it's too late? No, mm -hmm. it's just much harder and much more expensive to do now. Part of this book is a warning to other cities, right. frankly. Okay, well, that being the case, then you, since you brought the Beltline, I want to get to that if we can. From when it was envisioned by Ryan Gravel to where it is now, and I and we could have probably ask him his thoughts on that. Probably I will later. But are you do you are you saying that the Beltline is been more of a unintentional gentrification metric than it was than it should have been are you are you laying blame with the Beltline as being again critical to where we are now with Atlanta's housing issues well, it's hard for me to say no to that because <laughs> I, the title of the chapter is yeah. the Beltline <laughs> as a gentrification machine so I I can't can't say no to that on the other hand you know, I, I won't answer the question, is the Beltline, has the Beltline been a failure or not? No, I'm, I'm, that's not the point. The point is from its impact on the city in terms of demographics, housing affordability, and, and the book does not say the Beltline is the only factor, sure. of course. Um, but it was a huge, huge factor, and I think it was fundamentally implemented in a way that kind of brought about the downsides. I mean, if you read the Emerald Necklace report that Alexander Garvin wrote in 2004, the word affordable, the word uh, low income housing, none of those words appear in a report that's dozens of pages long, yet he talks about, yeah, it's already increasing property values mm -hmm. as a good thing. And this was 2004. Right. This was even before the, ta the tax allocation district. So clearly the investment community saw it as a gentrification project. In fact, one developer in 2005 called the Beltline the, the most exciting thing to happen in, since Sherman burned Atlanta. I mean, the notion that... Hmm this is going to make land much more valuable. So if I can get in on the ground floor, right? And we also developed the funding mechanism that was dependent on land values rising mm -hmm. without setting aside nearly enough money to do affordable housing. Finally, Professor, then as we look at this, you're saying it's not too late. Is this then again, man, if I had a dollar for every time I said, I said this word, is this a holistic approach to the change that needs to happen. It's a public-private partnerships. You mentioned city. We talked a lot about city. Didn't really talk much about the state, but the state and federal. And as you know, trying to get everybody on the same page, let alone the same room, is a task in itself. But is this something that we just have to policy our way out of? Cities have to policy their way out of this crisis. Yeah, we have to policy our way out of. And let me talk about quickly about public-private partnership. You know, the term is lauded in Atlanta, and 
the public-private, I, I write about this some in the book, the mm -hmm. public-private partnerships in Atlanta tend to, you know, benefit the private a lot more than the public. Um, and they tend to lead to really not public policy driven solutions, but by solutions that benefit private interests, particularly land owning, property owning interests. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't wanna be naive, uh, this, the book does not focus only on city policy. Sure. It definitely talks about the limitations imposed by state policy with a, a red state legislature. Um, but it's, you know, the, the mayor of Atlanta, the, the council, city council in Atlanta being the biggest city in the state and being, you know, having a huge amount of property wealth needs to take the lead to organize at the state level mm -hmm. to get policy changes. Even Democrats in the legislature don't seem to prioritize affordable housing, in my experience. A few do. Mm -hmm. But it's these are not issues that the legislature seems to want to deal with. It's extremely difficult to get even a minor cosmetic change to things like tenant protections. So cities like Atlanta need to take the lead to create change both at the city level and at the state level. The book is Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. Its author, Georgia State University Urban Studies Professor Dan Immergluck, been a guest on this program so many times. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I feel like we could really have gone the whole hour. Thank you so much, Rose. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. A few months ago, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell testified before Congress. Now, he's been giving regular updates on the state of the economy to lawmakers. Now, here's an exchange between Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, who asked Powell about the housing market. What we're seeing now is that uh, with rising interest rates, obviously new investments uh, are more expensive. Uh, we've seen housing starts fall by 14% in May. So that means fewer housing opportunities, less supply, uh, fewer workers um, engaged in building new homes. So if you could just use that as a sort of case study of how you're going to navigate these cross currents. Um, so interest sensitive spending is a is a very important aspect of how our tools work and in the case of uh, the housing market what you're seeing is higher mortgage rates so you're actually seeing demand move down quite significantly uh, 
many, many indicators suggest that fewer people are visiting homes, the wait time for uh, selling a home is increasing, housing, housing sales are moving down, housing starts are moving down, and uh, ov overall, uh, it's, a, it's a slowing in the housing market, and um, I, I think what you will see, or the for many forecasts call uh, for the increase in housing prices to slow pretty significantly now. Well, we shall see. Now, that was back in June of this year. And as I always say, depending on whom you ask, the answer varies in terms of where exactly is the nation's housing market headed. And particularly, that includes the Atlanta region. Well, we'll get some insight from Dominic Perviant. He's a Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta subject matter expert in residential real estate. And he also manages the bank's home ownership affordability monitor. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. I need a house. Where can I move to? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly I want a yard for a very big, large, goofy dog. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I want to be near a park. I want to be near all the major grocery stores. Mm -hmm. I want to be close to Marta. I want to be near the Beltline. Yeah. There uh, you go. <laughs> but that, that's a pretty robust list, and I think you pretty much want every what everyone else wants. Um, and you can have it. You just have to pay for it. Let's back up a little bit. You yeah. heard uh, Chairman Powell talk about, well, this was three months ago. He said, well, I understand this. Because those mortgage rates are so high, you know, maybe demand is, is dropping. We still seeing that? Well, so I'll, I'll talk nationally and then kind of talk mm -hmm. locally what we're seeing in Atlanta. Um, before I begin, just one caveat that my views don't necessarily represent sure. the views of the Federal Reserve. Um, so with that in mind, um, so nationally, we are seeing a pretty good, uh, pretty sharp contraction in demand. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the percentage of people who think it's a good time to buy, I mean, it's it's at cycle lows. Mm -hmm. And so today, there are a lot of people who are seeing home prices go up. They're seeing interest rates rise pretty rapidly. They're electing to sit on the sidelines. And so if you look at national home sales, they're down about 20% in the most recent numbers. Um, if you look at mortgage originations, whether it's purchase mortgages, purchase mortgages are down about 20%, refi mortgages are down about 80%. Um, most people, most economists either uh, at the National Realtors Association as mm -hmm. well as the National Home Builders Association are characterizing what we're seeing currently in housing as a recession. Um, now, the rest of the economy is, is still some questions whether or not we're there or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly housing has seen a, cons a, a pretty consistent and persistent drop in demand since the beginning of the year when, when rates started to rise. When economists talk about metrics they're looking at in terms of inflation and whether or not we'll head into a recession, they look at labor. Mm -hmm. And then they also look at some key industries or sectors. And, of course, you know, we talk about big purchases. Housing is right up there. So with the Fed raising interest rates, they want to control, if you will, the, the behavior of the consumer. And obviously right. – High interest rates, you're not going to buy a home. So right. for folks like you and you're looking at that, but there's also such a need for housing in general. Right. One would argue, well, perhaps that's a good thing, but we're also we're, 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 we're creating a barrier, a hindrance for a particular sector of our population right. who maybe they feel like now's a good time to buy because maybe they've been saving their money through the pandemic. I don't know. But now you've got these high interest rates. So yeah. it's, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Um, the The Federal Reserve has very blunt instruments to deal with things like inflation. 
And so in, in the rooms I'm in, I always make the argument because I'm, I'm a housing guy. Mm-hmm. So I always talk about the impact on housing um, when rates go up. But the Fed is primarily focused on inflation. And we sort of have a limited amount of tools that we can use to deal with inflation. One is interest rates. And yes, it does have an impact on housing. Um, but if you look at the cost in other sectors of the economy, um, those continue to rise. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is the demand is much higher than, than current our ability to supply. And the only thing that we have, the, you know, we can't do much on the supply side to mm-hmm. deal with the supply chain disruptions and things that are still having to work out from the pandemic. What we can do is control demand. And so that's where our uh, interest rate policy is coming in. When you're looking at Atlanta or this region, are you using a different set of tools then, market tools that, that you look at, that you assess? how the, Because you all even said Atlanta is officially unaffordable. <laughs> right, right. So based on our, so we, we have a, uh, a tool that we create in our shop called the Home Ownership Affordability Monitor. Mm-hmm. And basically we measure how affordable a market is to the median income household based on the, the current median price house. And so... Um, if anything, if a the median income household is spending greater than 30% of its income on housing, then housing is considered unaffordable. And Atlanta, relatively speaking, has been a very affordable market. Um, it's one of the reasons why people want to move here. And Afford- wait, wait, you said Atlanta, Atlanta has recently been a very affordable? Has historically, historically been, okay. <laughs> been very affordable. <laughs> uh, and that's in terms of if you just look at the median price for a house in Atlanta versus mm-hmm. New York or New Jersey, where a lot of people are moving from, Atlanta's relatively cheaper. But also just the share of income, people used to be able to come to Atlanta and spend you know, less than 30% of their income on housing. That's changed. Even prior to the rise in rates, mm-hmm. just the increase in home prices overall has made Atlanta unaffordable. And so today, the median income household is spending about 41% of their income just to afford a house. To afford a house. And so remember, the threshold is 30%. Percent. Right. So it's great for those folks who are coming from Seattle or San Francisco or right. New York or where have you, Miami. My yeah. goodness, I have a friend in Miami who's yeah. like, Rose, I'm about to put a tent up on the beach. <laughs> that's great for them. Yeah. But then for folks who live here. Yeah. that That's part of the problem. Right. So what happened during the pandemic is if you're in New York, you had a whole lot of equity in your house and you were you were paying higher taxes and and you wanted to sort of get out of New York from the issues related to the pandemic, you could sell your house in New York and move to Atlanta and either pay cash for a house or pay well above the asking price. And so if you're moving to Atlanta and you have you have you're coming with a whole lot of cash and equity. Mm-hmm. Atlanta looks relatively affordable. Yeah. But if you actually live here, mm-hmm. and you're you're making the median income for the region, it's not as affordable for you. And so that's been the tension. How did we get here? Okay. How did Atlanta get here? I've been asking this question to a whole lot of people. Just did an interview with Dan McGluck over from Georgia State Urban Studies, a professor who says, you know, there's a whole lot of optics around. You can look at uh, some policy issues. I'm not asking you to be the the policy person yeah. here, but because you're just looking at the stats and the numbers. But through your lens, how did we get here beyond policy? Is it just because of new development coming in? 
It's because all these folks from New York and San Francisco and Seattle are coming in saying, hey, we can afford to, to purchase something four hundred, five $500,000, all of the above. If I had to uh, point out one thing, it's the, it's the overall lack of supply. That's not just in Atlanta, but just nationally. And there's two types of housing supply. So there's existing supply, people that own a house, that put their house on the market, and there's new construction. Mm-hmm. And what's happened, and this is prior to the pandemic, but this sort of accelerated through the pandemic, so many people have refinanced their mortgages and locked it in at a low rate. Mm-hmm. And so if you refi- your, refinance your mortgage, your, you lowered your mortgage payment, it's sort of a disincentive for you now to put your house to the market. And so if you look nationally, on average, um, the uh, the average homeowner has a mortgage that ha- that has an interest rate of less than 4%. Mm-hmm. And so now rates are up over 6%, and so there's no reason for you to ever sell. And so if there's fewer people selling, there's less inventory available. Sure. And then during the pandemic, you had interest rates drop um, to, in some cases, below 3%. Mm-hmm. That led to a spike in demand. And so you have the combination- And now it's double. The interest rate is double. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you have a combination of limited supply and increase in demand that creates that upward pressure on price. Which seems when you think about it, because we're in this global pandemic and and, and I was floored because we did subjects on this and I was floored that the housing industry was staying so stable, if not skyrocketing during the pandemic. So now you're telling me, Mr. Real Estate Expert, because you are, that I should have bought in the pandemic. So what you telling me? Well, if you bought during the pandemic, you could have locked in a yeah. mortgage at a very low rate. Yeah. And so a lot of people who bought or refinanced are, are there. They have a, a mortgage with is three point five percent. Now mortgage now interest rates is are at over six percent and it's like there's no way that I'm gonna sell. And then on the so that's just the existing home side. So yeah. on the new home side, um what's happened is during the pandemic there was a spike in demand. For, for both existing and new construction, we just couldn't deliver homes fast enough. Mm-hmm. And so because of supply chain issues. And so builders passed on And it their, took some time for right. some workers, for workers to come back right. because there was a little bit of a stoppage, not a big stoppage, right. but a little bit of a stoppage in, in so, building. Yeah, so the, there was the labor issues, there was material cost issues. You know, Famously, lumber increased almost three or four times um, and so all of that increased cost was passed on to the consumer. The consumer could afford to pay it because, of course, interest rates were mm-hmm. low. And so you had all of those things working together, a spike in demand, so some constraints on supply, created a situation where in Atlanta, in the past two years, home prices have increased over 50%. So if you go back to where we were July of 2020, mm-hmm. the median home price was about around $260,000 or $270,000. Today it's $405,000, dollars on the median. Yeah. What? In just two years. Oh, man. And so that is just, first of all, it's unsustainable. That level of, (laughs) so people who have benefited from increased appreciation. You should um, see this email. That's crazy, Rose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, and that's, 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 now, if you have that level of increase in home prices, and then you tack on, you know, 300 basis point increase in interest rates, mm-hmm. that just, that just leads a, a, a 
pretty sharp contraction in demand. And that's what we're seeing now. And the, the benefit, I think, in Atlanta, Atlanta is doing a little bit better than other markets across the country. We're still having, we still have relatively stable demand. Um, um, we're, we're, we haven't seen uh, prices and in, in inventory, uh, we haven't seen inventory increase as much as on the markets. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen prices drop uh, that much as as we're seeing in like Boise and Austin and other other markets across the country, but Atlanta typically lags the rest of the nation, and so it's it's highly likely that the slowdown in activity that we're currently seeing in other markets will eventually find its way here. You say highly likely, but yeah. when <laughs> is it? Twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four. Any idea like when when? Well, because if economists like yourself and, and, and folks like you are, are looking to what happens this last quarter of this year in terms of consumer spending and whether or not we go into this recession, and again, economists can't even agree on that. I won't yeah. even ask you about that, yeah. but w- w- what do you look for? W- what are those indicators that you look for to see when Atlanta hits that, that slowdown? It's, it's the level of supply. Remember, mm-hmm. if the upward pressure on price was caused by a limited supply, downward pressure on prices is going to be caused uh, by an increase of supply. Mm-hmm. And so right now, Atlanta still has a supply shortage. Um, we still have about a two-month supply of inventory. And inventory is that has, for all or just new builds? That's existing existing inventory. Existing. New, new inventory is a little bit higher mm-hmm. typically. But um, inventory levels have to get above four before we see some significant slowdown in, in the rate of appreciation. Because so we have some, some we it will get there just based on where demand is, but it will take some time. Because I feel like no matter what neighborhood you go through, you turn a corner, there's a crane, there's something big <laughs> going up on the Beltline. I'm going to yeah. ask you about the Beltline. Right. Because that has been depending, again, I love saying this, depending on whom you ask, the Beltline is a factor in terms of Atlanta's current housing crisis. Sure. It's one of those for mm-hmm. some people. Um, how do you see something like this? Uh, there's a major development that impacts the entire city, not just a development in one neighborhood in the west side or east Atlanta. You're talking about a development or project that's enveloping the entire city and housing prices in all around this 22-mile loop. Yeah. Just what are your thoughts on, on what, it, what it's become, what it's becoming? That's based to housing. So um, this is your lens through your viewpoint. Yeah. So I actually live within walking distance of the Beltline. It's so. your fault, Dominic. <laughs> You're the reason. So I it the Beltline transformed the city of Atlanta. Okay. Um, it it created a high, highly desirable amenity for people who wanted to move in town. Mm-hmm. And it caused demand for in-town living to spike. Mm-hmm. However, demand for in-town living is has increased across the country. Like people want to live in town, and I think um, if anything, the Beltline sort of accelerated the the um, the demand to live close by. And those neighborhoods that are close by to the Beltline have seen pretty sharp increase in demand and upward pressure on price. Um, but that's a trend that's sort of a national trend. People want to live in town. Mm-hmm. You give them a, an amenity, a park, um, something like the Beltline. Oh, it's it's it, fabulous. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. You know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm not that far from the Beltline. Yeah. I mean, I love it, too. I, I, don't blame me. So, yeah, I love it. 
Yeah. But the development that is coming on board and you look at and then there are want to be fair too, there are efforts to make sure there is quote affordable housing yeah. somewhere around that. And I want to ask you this because it's fair. Everybody else gets this question. What does affordable housing look like to you? What does that mean? Well, so I've mainly focused on housing affordability. I know. And there's a difference. affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And so it is very, very difficult to build affordable housing in today's market. So when I talk to builders, this was prior to the pandemic. They were telling me that, so back when I first came to Atlanta, the majority of new home construction in Atlanta was less than $250,000. Today, the majority is above $300,000, simply because you cannot build a new house for less than $300,000, almost mm-hmm. anywhere in Atlanta, simply because of of cost. The, the cost of construction is so high that it's difficult to build you know, if you're just talking about purchase for, for homes for purchase, mm-hmm. you just can't deliver the product. And so it's it's extremely difficult without some sort of subsidy uh, to deliver that product for, for people. I have a listener who says, please ask about the years of Atlanta building, quote, luxury market homes and apartments. Has that also been a, an issue? I don't know if I should call it a problem. I'll get emails, but. Has that been yeah, part well, of the Yeah, well, part issue? of the issue with the, the the reason why most apartment construction you see is what we call class A or, mm-hmm. or more expensive apartments is because you can't build class B or class C apartments and make a profit just because of how much it costs. And so if you're going to build an apartment, just based on cost, you only could build class A apartments. Mm-hmm. And they're always going to be more expensive. And the way you create more affordable apartments is you have people, uh, you sort of have the older older products sort of mm-hmm. become, take the place of, um, become more affordable over time. But you can't, you simply can't deliver very affordable, cheap, whether it's for sale or for rent products. And, de- and that's what developers will say. Yeah. Well, then, you know, for years we hear, well, as long as there's, for some on that side, they'll say, well, we can maybe do 15% right. in terms of what's considered affordable housing. But then 15% of whatever affordable housing, that changes yeah. via location. Yeah. You know that. Right. As we're going to wrap up, then, Dominic, where do you think we'll be? If I'm asking you the same question a year from now, I say, look, Dominic, I had you last year. We were talking about Atlanta's housing market, its trend. You know, what's it look like? What do you think your analysis would be? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. I have to come back next year. <laughs> um, I uh, and, and don't play this because just in case I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, I, trust me. <laughs> no, I, I think we're in for a um, considerable contraction in the housing market. Um, both nationally and eventually locally. Um, most economists are calling for somewhere around a 10% decline in mm-hmm. home prices from the peak. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with that or not, mm-hmm. but I do think at the very least, you know, last year in Atlanta, home prices were up 20%. We're not going to see 20% increases in home prices mm-hmm. moving forward. At the very least, it'll be in the single digits. If not, um, some submarkets may see a, a decline in prices simply because, you know, we um, we're seeing demand drop at, at such a level, and people putting their house on, houses on the market today, they're having to cut prices in order to generate activity, 
And so once you start to see that, that means it's a sort of precursor for a significant slowdown in housing. And no, and no longer you then think for those who are looking to buy, will they have to battle with someone else who's offering ten and twenty and thirty thousand dollars above the asking price? We I've heard stories of folks yeah. that look, I you know I took my little letter in there and they were like, ha ha ha, yeah, I got yeah. this over here. Yeah, yeah. So we're seeing. So as if you were if you were selling your home a year ago. You were having like, you know, maybe 10 offers, 20 offers. Now it's down to like two offers. And yeah, the good old days are yeah, gone. In, in some sellers. cases, you would have to lower your price in order yeah. to, to generate sales. So we're not seeing that as much anymore, for sure. From the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Dominic Priviant, subject matter expert, residential real estate. He also manages the bank's home ownership affordability monitor. Thank you so much for coming in and taking time. I really appreciate it. We're, we're going to have you back. Thank you. I look forward to it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as you always do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.